So, how was your 2020? Was it a delightful romp through Candyland? Or was it a painful slog through a burning post-apocalyptic hellscape? Or are you just sick and tired of listening to people talk about it? Well, buckle up, because that's the opening focus of today's podcast. Joining me is historian and friend of the podcast, Jared Frederick. We'll be talking about which events in the past year are memorable enough to make it into the history books. And then we'll talk about his latest book, Hang Tough, The World War II Letters and Artifacts of Major Dick Winters. Welcome back, Jared. Uh, Thank for those. You. For those of the listeners who might be unfamiliar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Jared, what's your story? I am a historian from the Altoona, Pennsylvania area, and uh, I've, I've had that disease for a long time through uh, <laughs> most of my life. Uh, I've, I've been a, a caretaker and a student of the past since childhood. And my uh, studies and passion have taken me all over the country and all over the world. And I'm here to talk a little bit and ruminate on uh, some of my uh, experiences and observations in the due course of all of that. Great. Um, yeah, I remember you as a child. You were, um, I think you were like 12 or 13, maybe 14, you were already 6'2", and uh, you were the most erudite historian of someone your age I'd ever encountered. Uh, and I think we've been friends ever since. And then we discovered Indeed. we have a family connection. So Indeed. anyway, well, let's just dive right into this miasma that was 2020. Is 2020 really as bad as everybody makes it out to be. I mean, I understand how history works. It's always bad when you're living it, but looking back and in retrospect, is it really that bad? Um, I mean, it isn't like, I don't know, the bubonic plague, the two world wars, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But how, how memorable as far as just atrocity was 2020? <laughs> I would say it's it's fairly tumultuous as people think it is. And, you know, in the context of global history, no, it, it's not like the bubonic plague. You know, it's not like the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, but as far as United States history goes, it certainly ranks up there in one of the worst years in our history. And the reason why it is so is because you have the blending of all of these chaotic ingredients. And I, I think the best way that I can say it is that it is a mixture of 1864, 1918, 1929, 1944, and 1968 all rolled up into one. All swell years, by the way. <laughs> Indeed. And I, I, I pick those years because... 2020 is truly the most divided we have been since the Civil War, and I do not say that lightly. I've been a student of the American Civil War my whole life, and what we are in right now is a cold Civil War, mm. where we do not have 
vast legions of people shooting at each other. Uh, but the division is there. It is real. It is palpable. And rather than north versus south, it is urban versus rural. Yeah, I can see that. And it is, uh, it is cultural as well as political. And I think it, it does bear some similarity uh, to the Civil War. And we can circle back to that, I think, especially in the context of uh, the January 6th riots at the Capitol. Um, but it also reminds me of the other years that I mentioned. 1918, of course, you have the Spanish flu, which is mm -hmm. the closest comparable pandemic that we have in historical memory uh, that that is relates to COVID-19. Um, it's like 1929 because it's one of the worst economic windfalls that we've seen since the onset of the Great Depression, in part caused by COVID-19. It's like 1944 because we have surpassed the number of American fatalities that were lost in World War II. Mm -hmm. And it's like 1968 because we see all of these forces at play uh, that are involved in this cultural and political tug of war that are trying to determine what direction our country is going to go in. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you have a riot, you have riots, you have a, a very uh, contested election, uh, and just all of these other political elements uh, falling into place over very testy issues. Right. Um, and so it, it's a mixture of all of these things. Mm -hmm. And I, on, on one hand, it's a fascinating time to be a historian, in addition to being a overtly concerned citizen as a lot of these things unfold. Yeah. Um, as a product of the 1960s, um, myself and most of my schoolmates, the males, were uh, deeply involved in the Vietnam draft. Uh, of course, a certain number of people uh, enlisted right out of high school or and or were drafted right out of high school. Um, in retro, looking back, uh, you can see how the draft was manipulated during that time period in some rather unpleasant ways, which eventually led to its end. Um, but uh, this was a time of a huge cultural shift, too. Um, we have a future podcast coming up where I'm going to be talking to another friend who happens to be a rabbi, and we're going to be exploring the history of what's known as the blood libel. And the blood libel throughout most of its history has been used to denigrate and to excuse the murder of the Jewish people, but it hasn't always been. Uh, and one of the things that's very striking about it in each country where a blood libel has been proposed, uh, and for people who are unfamiliar with it, it's the idea that you have an outsider group who you wish to blame for everything that's changing in your society that you don't like. So as the medieval period began to change and as trade advanced, uh, you see more and more 
travels throughout Europe of various groups of people and them settling outside of their native countries or where they had been for a long time and people push back. It's, it's the immigration crisis. And so, and so some of those people were Jews. Every time there was a unexplained murder, especially of a child, the blood libel was invoked and it was used as an excuse to persecute the Jews. And it continued right up through the time of Hitler. But then it's changed because the blood libel was also used during the satanic panic of the 80s when the McMartin school trial was in all the headlines. And what was going on? Oh, a satanic cult of people were torturing children and killing them and drinking their blood. Which brings us right up to today. The proliferation, uh, when we see you know, the uh, videos of the people attacking the Capitol, the proliferation of QAnon shirts that people were wearing and po holding posters. You know, there were QAnon uh, adherents from all over Pennsylvania were bused down to Washington. I'm not saying that they necessarily participated as church groups in the riot, but they were there. Uh, and um, once again, what's QAnon? Well, there's this whole group of elites who are trying to get their own immortality. So what are they doing? Well, they're kidnapping children and torturing them and killing them and drinking their blood to become immortal. That's QAnon and it's the blood libel all over again. This is, this is what alarms me is how insane this is, number one. And number two, how readily certain groups of our society pick up on this. I mean, you have the pressure. Yeah, this, there's a, there's been a great deal of political pressure <laughs> practically as long as I've been a conscious adult, I've seen it. But um, this year it came to bear in some really, really weird ways. Um, and I know there was cultish activity after the civil war, there was, um, well, there was the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, which was definitely cult-like in its behavior, at least the original Klan was. And um, so I see this history repeating itself again and again uh, in so many different ways. And 2020 is a, is a really interesting and weird uh, weird year for people who are paying attention to those kind of trends. Yeah, and there are many historical precedents uh, to the things that we are seeing playing out in the present. And, you know, it, it certainly, I think in no small part, goes back to the Civil War era where, you know, the, the earliest uh, manifestations of the Republican Party was often spoken of in a, a derogatory fashion as the Black Republican Party, that mm -hmm. it was seen as this conspiracy of uh, abolitionists and prominent African-American thinkers who were trying to undermine American democracy and, you know, we're going to pollute American society with miscegenation and all of these other sorts of uh, all right. widely feared things. Um, of, of the mid 19th century. And, you know, it, it, it certainly is built upon with entities like the Ku Klux Klan, 
that are, you know, steeped in elements of the, the occult and ritual and things of that manner in the name mm -hmm. of establishing white purity and white supremacy. We see other things materialize in the 20th century uh, where, you know, opponents of the New Deal believe that Franklin Roosevelt was a, you know, puppet of a Jewish industrialist, All right. uh, so on and so forth. And that, of course, uh, tied in with many of the beliefs of the German-American Bund, uh, mm -hmm. the American Nazi Party that had tens of thousands of members at the height of its power. And so, you know, we can see these things proliferate. Um, over time, and there is a strain, a, a, a common strain that we see um, throughout all of this. And in most cases, it is pushback conducted by people who are fearful of social change right. in, in the United States. And, yeah. and that goes all the way back to the days of anti-slavery activities. Mm -hmm. And probably before, I mean, there were nationalist groups, uh, if I don't know if how many listeners have probably not read the book, unfortunately, but seen the movie based on it called The Gangs of New York. And um, the, as far as I can tell, the first truly nationalistic American movement is illustrated by the nativist gangs mm -hmm. that are talked about in the lower Manhattan gangs and they were responding. What were they responding to? The first big influx of Irish Catholics coming into yeah. the uh, into the country. So there you go. And yeah, we and had the know nothings and all these yeah. other people. Yeah. And, you know, and the other uh, commonality here is, you know, it's often named at or these efforts are often undertaken in the name of averting otherness. Yeah. Oh, of course. But, of course. Uh, whether it be immigrants, uh, people of different skin color. And, you know, with the nativists, you know, it was in reaction to the first big influx of immigration mm -hmm. in the United States as a result of the potato famine and all of the fallout resulting from that. Yeah. And one of the underlying criticisms that nativists launched was that Irish Catholics could not be loyal American citizens because their greater obligation was to the Pope and not the Constitution. Right. And of course, that materializes again, 110, 120 years later, when John F. Kennedy is yeah. running for office, you see those same sort of nativist fears emerge. Can we exactly. have a Roman Catholic president? Yeah. Um, and of course, interestingly enough, it, I, I, I'm surprised that this didn't come up in conspiracy theory corners. Um, <laughs> but with the election of Joe Biden, it seemed to me at least that that argument was not as pronounced as it was 60 years ago. I could be wrong. Perhaps I just didn't. Well, it's that. softened, but there's also the fact that the largest portion of the um, uh, new justices and the conservative justices on the Supreme Court are all Roman Catholic, are traditionalist Roman Catholics. So perhaps, you know, that's the balance there. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to let all of that pass because we're beyond that now. 
uh, allegedly. But of course, you know, the Marvel supervillain who lurks behind all of this, whose name is invoked in whispers by every talking head on the radio, in a podcast, and on television is that great evil mastermind, you know, worthy of, like I said, James Bond or Marvel Comics, George Soros. Yeah, so there it is, you know, there it is in a nutshell. Evil George Soros is funding everything. I mean, he must be incredibly rich. I know he's wealthy, but he I mean to fund everything I don't like. Wow. The guy's really on the ball. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's talk. Can we talk about, um, since neither one of us are doctors, can we talk about um, COVID a little bit and Absolutely. how how impactful that's been? Uh, how are you enjoying your house <laughs> and not much else <laughs> indeed it, it's it, it's been surreal because it's been 11 months since i've you know uh, stepped in a, a physical classroom to mm -hmm. teach my students um which is very painful for me because uh, i i greatly enjoy interacting with students and there's you know, just all sorts of opportunities uh, that one can undertake in the classroom that just aren't possible on Zoom. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I like to do to try to bring history to life is to bring artifacts into the classroom yeah. and to pass them around and to let students examine them or yeah. try them on or, you know, what mm -hmm. have you. And it, it's, it's been difficult uh, making up for that void of creativity and interaction and yeah. on occasion i'll you know i'll dress up in old clothing and have a colorful zoom background to try to lend some humor and levity uh to the moment um but you know it it i mean it's a difficult time for everybody and yeah. everybody has had to readjust and as i tell my students as we talk about covid as a chapter of contemporary history you know, I just tell them in short, life will never be the same again. This has changed everything. It changes the way we communicate. It will change medicine. It will change education. Um, you know, it, it, it is a life-altering, history-changing moment. And what I've been doing since March of 2020 is that I've been keeping a journal and in in the past weeks, I, I I've neglected um, some of it, and at least in comparison to how I used to, just because I've been so busy uh, juggling so many things. Uh, but back in March, I realized what a volatile year this was going to be, and I thought and maybe some historian of the future will find you know, some, uh, some lone historian's perspective, uh, interesting or revealing, mm -hmm. but in short, um, you know, it, it has, it has changed everything and will continue to change everything. Yeah. I'm, I'm personally, as someone who's a little older than you, um, 
looking forward to being able to get a vac my vaccination. Uh, not that that will necessarily be a panacea for all the future versions of COVID that might be coming down the pike, and they're coming down very fast. There's they're, they're saying there's an African version that we really don't know that much about. Now I read there's a Brazilian version that's really bad. Um, so yeah, it's, it's gonna be around for a long time, unfortunately. It um, is. And for people with businesses, it's been devastating. You know, commerce has slipped a great deal, especially among, you know, unless you're Amazon or Google or Apple, you know, if you're if you're a small local business, um, especially if you have a restaurant, it's been horrible. I, it's terrible. But what can you do? I mean, uh, there's no happy medium there available yeah. to people. Yeah. So uh, and and once again, going back to your reference to 1918, um, you know, I I lost relatives uh, in during that time period, I know of ancestors who perished because of the Spanish flu. And um, uh, there are uh, other parallels too that you can draw. There was an anti-masking league uh, started in San Francisco where people just refused to wear masks. They said it was their right. They said the Spanish flu wasn't as bad as everyone was making it out to be. And so people refused to wear masks and they actually ended up having to arrest people for violating all the safety protocols that this, for example, the city of San Francisco tried to put into place and other cities that didn't saw enormous death tolls. So there's another parallel right there. Um, sometimes I hate to say this, but sometimes this will offend the libertarians in the audience. Um, sometimes I think too much is made of our America's concept of personal freedom and too little is made of, of our concept of personal responsibility. And um, there has to be some sort of balance there. And it just seems to be really out of balance right now. So, um, I will say I'm happy to see, since you do like to dress up and like cosplay and stuff like that, I'm glad to see you not wearing a, um, a buffalo horn headdress or anything like that while we're talking. The people listening can't see this, but you know, we'll actually look as normal as we look <laughs> during this podcast. So the big stories would be um, politics, the riot, nationalism, COVID, those are the things that this year will, if it goes down in the history books, will go down the history books about. Is there anything else? Oh boy, yeah, there's. It's just been a constant whirlwind, and as I sit here, it's almost hard to imagine. Um, hard to hard to think about what else you know we could include. I mean, you know. One of the, the first great shocks of 2020, you know, from a, a, a cultural history perspective in the eyes of many, you know, this seems like forever ago, but, you know, the death of Kobe Bryant, you know. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, um, you know, in hindsight now, you know, how we prioritize what is important. And I think it may have been USA Today where, you know, 
the story of Kobe Bryant was, you know, big front page news, and that was the main story. And in a thinner column on the side of the front page was essentially an early warning article about COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think it it reveals something to us about celebrity culture, what we prioritize uh, in regard to the media. And I think those will be interesting sorts of things that historians of the future will analyze, Yeah, you know, um, whether in uh, politics, sports, Hollywood, music, uh, kind of the the cult of personality or celebrity Mm -hmm. often conceals bigger picture issues uh, you know, that, that we confront as citizens. And I, I think that in the history books, there may be a reckoning of that in the decades to come. Yeah. My, my personal viewpoint, uh, and now I'm lapsing into old man standing on his porch yelling, get off my grass, you damn kids, uh, is to take media influencers on YouTube and TikTok stick them on a bus set it on fire and watch it go over a cliff but hey that's just me (laughs) i'm sure no one else agrees with that so um let's 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 move on um let's talk about your new book um first off you have a co-author on this book that's new right yeah and um yeah his name is eric door so tell us about eric our uh, association uh, it came about in, in some rather unexpected ways. Uh, we came to know each other and become friends through our various connections at Gettysburg. Uh, my first summer working as a park ranger at Gettysburg National Military Park uh, coincided with his inaugural season of his museum, which is called the Gettysburg Museum of History. And if, if none of you have ever been there before, I, I definitely encourage you to go check it out. And it's a very eclectic assortment of artifacts from American history. And you know, your first time there, it's almost an overwhelming experience. Um, there are everything from uh, mummy heads to a lock of George Washington's hair to president, various forms of presidential artifacts, a lot of artifacts regarding the Battle of Gettysburg itself, an abundance of things from the Second World War, and perhaps most notable among those is the largest collection of Easy Company artifacts uh, pertaining to the characters who were portrayed in the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. Um, his museum has uh, essentially become like the unofficial repository uh, for artifacts uh, connected to that very iconic unit of World War II. And the, the gem of that collection is many of Major Dick Winters's artifacts. Um, and he, of course, is, is the main character, the protagonist, the, the, the hero, the spine of both the book and the series Band of Brothers. And uh, this collection includes 
his various uniforms, his sidearm, his helmet, uh, his wallet, and an abundance of his personal correspondence and letters, uh, both from the war years and in the decades that followed. And uh, the core of our book examines letters that he wrote to a pen pal who was back in the United States during the war. And it was a young woman who was in the waves, as they were called, uh, which was the naval reserve for females during that conflict. And her name was Dieta Alman. Wow. And it's just a fascinating correspondence that they shared. And what makes it so unique and compelling in contrast to other books written about him or his unit is that the letters lack the power of hindsight. Hmm. They place us in the moment. You know, they, they okay. are written in real time and they are being penned where the future is not altogether certain. You know, victory was not a foregone conclusion uh, right. as we see in, you know, the memoirs of many of these guys. And so there's, there's a wonderful element of immediacy to the story. And it's, and one could also argue that it's, that the letters are, they're less shrouded by the fog of war. You know, you aren't misremembering things or right. exaggerating things or uh, shaped by other factors. Um, by and large, they're just pure, you know, undistilled snapshots of the historical moment. And interspersed uh, with those letters, we, we bridge the letters with contextual commentary, so they all kind of flow seamlessly together. And uh, further interspersed are previously unseen photos from his collection, as well as uh, really nice color template photos of his artifacts, which are on display in mm -hmm. the Gettysburg Museum of History. Um, and so that, in a nutshell, is what the book is all about. And it was, it was a real honor and a real fascinating journey to analyze all of this stuff and connect some of the dots in this man's life story. Okay. So the average person who picks up this book, who is Dick Winters? What are they going to learn about him? Uh, who is he as a person? I mean, the fact that you're actually getting reportage during a war as it was happening without that sort of contextual overview, you're going to see it through the eyes of one of the great heroes and focuses of the book Band and Bro of Brothers. So who, who emerged? Who is yeah. this person? Yeah. Uh, Dick was born in uh, outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, while World War I was ongoing, uh, believe it or not. And his mother came from old Mennonite stock, mm. and she instilled in him the virtues of hard work, simplicity, and diligence. And over time, when he joined the peacetime army um, in the months before Pearl Harbor, 
he used those skills and perspectives to good use. This was a man who wanted to rise to his fullest potential, not to show off or do it in any sort of mercenary fashion. He just wanted to prove it to himself that he was capable of being among the best. And if he could help out his country and his fellow comrades simultaneous with that, that was ultimately his mission. And there is a, a really fascinating evolution to his character and his outlook on life as the war goes on. And you see this progression and this evolution in the letters that he writes to Dieta. Uh, you know, his, his stateside letters, you know, while he's still in America or while he's in England before he gets into combat, you know, the letters are a little bit chipper. Uh, they're a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, and once he gets into combat, bit by bit and month by month, the letters become more cynical. They become a bit darker. Uh, he has disdain, uh, in many cases, I think, uh, for other branches of the service. Mm. Because he has a perception that, you know, oh, people in the Navy or the Air Forces, they aren't pulling their weight in comparison to what me and my guys are doing. The Army is doing, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And some of the letters, portions of the letters are exceedingly dark and troubling. Mm. And by the time he gets to 1945 and after he has survived the Battle of the Bulge, you know, he writes to her saying that 80% of my dreams that I have while I sleep are about combat. Yeah. And he said they are cruel and harsh and violent. Mm. And, you know, that's something that he, you know, never really said in interviews, uh, to my memory, you know, he, he never really, you know, expressed something like that in his memoirs. And, you know, he, he is seen as this kind of rock solid leader, you know, who was unwavering. Mm -hmm. And certainly that is the perspective that he conveyed to his men. You know, he, he had to stay strong for his men. He wanted to evoke that image to his subordinates. And his letters to Dieta were an outlet for him to describe what he was going through because he couldn't really turn to everybody else, you know. Right. Being a commander can be a very lonely thing. Right. Because if you talk about your emotions or you talk about, um, you know, some of the bad or uneasy feelings that you're having, that can easily be perceived as a sign of weakness by those under you. Mm -hmm. And so the letters were very important in this regard. And later on at the end of the war, um, not, not to spoil the book or anything like that, um, but he, he writes to her in 1945 oh. saying that, that you, all, you were always there for me. You listened. You understood yeah. me. And something like that, the, the value of it 
for someone who is thousands of miles away from home and find themselves in a position like that, um, it really can't be, the importance of it really can't be underscored enough. That's very touching. And the vulnerability that you see, I, no doubt in the letters, uh, is equally touching. And the fact that she held on to them, you know, is really an important decision because I think there's a lot of that stuff that ends up, you know, when people look back, they say, yeah, this is very personal, very emotional. Um, maybe we'll just make these go away. Yeah. You know, and I think that's true of a lot of things. I mean, you yeah. know, you find letters that, you know, your parents wrote sometimes to other people, you know, and things like that. And, you know, it opens your eyes to these people as being completely human, which, yeah. you know, based on what we were saying before about the cult of personality. So now you have this person depicted in an award-winning historical, you know, mini-series, uh, Easy Company. You know where I first heard that name? In where? a DC comic book. Sergeant Rock and Easy Company. Yeah. So, you know, this is this has entered the realm of legend. Yeah. And the, every time something becomes a legend, the folklore grows around it and sometimes completely obscures it. So that's why a book like yours is so valuable because it humanizes. There's this whole, as, as far as I'm aware of, there's this whole um, movement among people who write books of history to humanize history, uh, to take us back away from the people who we put big statues of up that are all shiny and glittery and well-polished uh, to look at the, um, the common people who were um, in some cases the participants, in some cases the victims of these huge historical movements. And it's hard to think of one bigger than World War II um so that's that's eye-opening thank you so very very much where would uh, hopefully we've intrigued people enough to make them want to uh buy your book and uh i know that's not why you write books you you don't care about that kind of material stuff it's simply for the sake of history but if people want to buy a copy of your book where can they get it um, Amazon um, during these days of isolation is uh, the, the best place uh, where one can get it. Uh, and you can order it through any bookstore. Uh, you can get it on uh, Simon & Schuster website. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you can order it if you'd like uh, personalized copies. Uh, you can go to my website at jaredfrederick.com and I would be happy to uh, sign a copy for you. And uh, likewise, uh, you can get them through the Gettysburg Museum of History as well, either through that website or if you want to go um, to the museum in person and uh, buy a copy off of my co-author, Eric, uh, they are available there as well. So there's a number of different outlets in which you can procure a copy. That's great. Is there anything else you want to say about the book in summary? Yeah, you know, I, I think what you said about humanizing these really dramatic experiences of, of history really gets to the core reason why we did this. Um, 
Dick Winters is a very celebrated officer of World War II. I mean, he's up there with people like Audie Murphy now, you know, right. kind of these common lieutenants and officers and foot soldiers uh, who, who rose above and beyond. And I always think that it's important for us to remember that they are not marble figures, that they had vulnerabilities, they had personal flaws that they themselves recognized. And that makes the past come alive in some really profound ways. And that's often how I like to write about history, um, including uh, some, of, some of my books that I have in mind for the future. Great. Well, Jared, I want to thank you for coming back. Hopefully, this won't be the only time you come back. We'll have some other things to talk about. And um, meanwhile, I want to thank our listeners. Uh, we've been down for almost a month, um, and we're back up and running again. And anyone who wants to listen to us can find us on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Spotify. And if you want to leave a comment, you can like our page on Facebook and leave a comment there. And we are always looking for stories to tell. So if you have a story you'd like to share with us, let us know and we'll put you on the podcast. And in the words of famous bodybuilder, governor, and killer robot from the future, the Terminator will be back.